Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. Let me take this opportunity to welcome Professor Mevin King, who would share his wisdom and insight on this very complex and, and, and complicated scenario of corporate governance. Prof, good evening and welcome to Beyond Governance. Thank you. Thank you. Prof, the first question that is in the minds of South Africans, particularly especially mine, is why did the stockbrokers, bro- stock the financial analysts, bankers and auditors fail to spot the signs of uh, troubles within the multinational retail at the time? Well, of course, mentioning all those professionals, they look at a company from different angles. But um, we must remember that Steinhoff was listed um, in, in the EU, in Amsterdam, where they have a two-tier board system, a supervisory board, which consists of non-executives, and the management board, which consists of executive directors. Marcus Joester, the chief executive, sat on the management board and not on the supervisory board, where well-known South African directors such as uh, Fonseil from Sonnam, uh, Len, Dr. Len Kerner were on that board. Well-known professional directors were on that board. And yet the counting irregularities happened. And one mustn't forget that the company traded through subsidiaries in, it was over 20 different countries, I think. And uh, the audits of those subsidiary companies were done by local auditors in those countries. So their unqualified audits were received by Deloitte, who was the auditor at consolidation up at the top. And uh, the critical question is, did they adopt sufficient audit skepticism in accepting those unqualified audits of the subsidiary companies, because then when you consolidate them, you get the growth in value, which we saw in Steinhoff before the bubble burst, when, as you pointed out, Deloitte asked questions and documents and refused to sign off their audit opinion in 2017 at the top that was in the consolidated phase, consolidation phase in South Africa. So the problems with Steinhoff shows management would value assets in the subsidiaries. And uh, now it is alleged, which still has to be proved, that uh, Steinhoff and some of his management colleagues uh, overvalued assets, particularly immovable property. And those were audited as unqualified So those are judgment calls, if you will appreciate, the management makes a decision as to the increased value of properties. And then the auditor checks the reasonableness in terms of auditing standards. And uh, that audit opinion was unqualified. So those unqualified audit opinions were accepted at the top for consolidation. The critical question, as I said, originally uh, earlier was uh, were there red flags which the auditor at consolidation Deloitte at the top should have seen I don't know the answer to those questions 
But um, what we do know is that assets were in fact overvalued. So a huge question mark remains on those audits, unqualified audit opinions of the subsidiary companies. But uh, a stockbroker would, of course, look at the audited accounts, and uh, so would the banker. Uh, they would look at the uh, net asset value, I suppose, as expressed in the balance sheet, and uh, they would use that as the guiding star for the question of advancing loans. Thank you very much for that uh, insight, Prof. But you raise a very interesting point around the, the, you know, the, 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 the failure of the audit firms to raise flags. The, the question that comes to mind is why didn't we not have, I would imagine the company of Stannard's caliber does apply combined assurance that is looking at both internal and external uh, or, or auditing, you know, function. What could have happened in terms of the control environment um, when using the combined assurance as a matter of principle? I don't think one can say that the auditor saw red flags. The question is, were they red flags? That's the critical issue. And were they sufficiently, um, uh, that you could sufficiently see them to take account of them as a skeptical auditor? Um, but the auditor's job, the auditor is not a bloodhound. The auditor, in terms of auditing standards and as controlled by the regulator, OBA, is not a bloodhound to sniff out fraud. He or she or it is a watchdog to ensure that management, the executive, because it's management's job to draw the financial statements. The auditor's job is to see whether those financial statements have been drawn according to financial reporting standards in this part of the world, IASB, International Auditing Standards Board standards, and they check to see whether the accounts have been drawn according to those standards. But they're not there to look and sniff out frauds. That's not the job of the auditor. They're not bloodhounds, and they mustn't be lapdogs. This is a canine education. That uh, They mustn't be lapdogs to management. They must be critical and ask questions. <coughs> so <coughs> whether that happens sufficiently, I also don't know the answer to that question. One of the issues. There were apparently uh, in, um, I think it was the German regulators who uh, in the German subsidiary saw some red flags and, um, and that's where I believe from newspaper reports that that's where the accounting irregularity started in that subsidiary. One critical issue, Prof, that also a question the credibility uh, or the oversight of the board because the boards, I mean, Estonia had cream teller cream board members. We have seasoned and professional um, auditors, uh, you know, risk managers, financial, uh, uh, you know, individual with financial experience and acumen, um, the, and yet this happened under their noses. What would you, what would have been the issue? When you have, I mean, I can understand when you have a board, uh, which is fairly, um, uh, naive or fairly, uh, um, inexperienced, but the, 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 the at, 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 you know, at Steinhoff, we've had the best of the best. Um, how do we account for these kind of financial irregularities under the nose of very competent or supposedly competent, uh, um, you know, board members? What would have been an issue there? Okay, the first thing, as I pointed out, this was a supervisory board where the, the directors you're talking about sat. 
So they had no co-face knowledge of the business in 20-odd different countries. Those people who had co-face knowledge were sitting on the management board. The non-executive directors, these well-known people you've talked about, sat on the supervisory board and they had to rely entirely on the pack of information given to them in their board pack. The law is quite clear that those non-executive directors sitting, looking at a board pack, are fully entitled to accept the veracity of the information. Only if they put on inquiry, because they read something which is inconsistent with what was said before, something that puts them on inquiry, they have a duty to inquire. If they don't inquire, they they fail in their duty of care to the company and they incur liability to the company. So the critical question is, was there something in the PACs that should have put those well-known directors, which only sat on the supervisory board and not on the management board, uh, put them on inquiry? The answer to that question, again, is I don't know the answer. But... That's the critical question. Were they put on inquiry? And if so, did they properly inquire? And that's a matter that is still being investigated. I couldn't agree with you more. But one one of the issues that I'm picking up, based on what you're saying, because we've got two types of board. We've got either a, a adversary board and, and, and a unitary board. Um, Supervisory and management in, in Amsterdam, yes, in the, yes. the EU. Yeah. Not in South Africa. We have a unitary board where the executive directors and the non-executives sit together as one board. Absolutely. I was coming to that point that um, perhaps maybe this is one big lesson, uh, lesson that you've learned that in a, super, an, a supervisory board um, is inherently flawed in that um, you know, you know, the, the non-executive board members have to depend on the management in terms of the submission. And unless, of course, they are able to pick up Red flags. If if they have not been able to pick up the red flags, uh, they will take it as 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 given. So so in a South African context, especially, what what the lessons would be around the value of a unitary board? Well, a unitary board, you've actually got the executive directors. That's people who are managers or have employment contracts with the company. They then move from being employees to being that statutory appointment, a director. They now have a duty of care to the company and uh, they must forget about their jobs as a manager, forget about the labor union they belong to or whatever their interests are outside the boardroom. They have now a duty to the company, who, which is an incapacitated artificial person that has no mind or conscience. The directors are the mind and conscience of the company and the directors individually and then collectively, as a collective mind, have to make business judgment calls. But they have to ensure those business judgment calls are in the long-term best interest of the health of the company. But take, make that decision after learning and understanding the needs, interests, and expectations, and I say now the hardships and concerns arising from COVID, of the various stakeholders of the company. Likewise, the stakeholders have to take account of the hardship suffered by the company during 2020 and the lockdowns and the restrictions. So you need, for a short term, uh, I think for another year at least, we're going to be in survival mode, where boards are making decisions for the survival of the company. 
because if a company goes into liquidation now, its infrastructure would be sold on auction and get very little thought in this market. And then human capital will be dispersed. And once we get back into thrive mode, let's say in two years' time in the economy, it would be very difficult to start that business again and find the human capital, build up the infrastructure. But if you've managed to survive on a slimmed down company, let's say with fewer employees, with smaller turnover, whatever it is, to ensure that you survive, you have a better chance of resurrecting that company during thrive mode in the economy in two years time. And the economy will, will start growing again more quickly if you can survive. So at the moment, the collective mind of the board is in very much a survive mode in order to be ready for survival. But at the same time, the board cannot forget its, its duty of care to the company as a long-term and the two critical issues long-term, two critical risks are cybersecurity and climate change. So they've got to make sure they build into the business model and strategy of the company sufficient of the sustainable development goals pertinent to the business into that business model so the company's ready to meet the exigencies that might arise when you get into a thrive mode again, the economy. Thank you very much for that insight, Prof. One, perhaps maybe one of the issues that I want to make a follow-up with is is the recourse for shareholders and ordinary uh, ordinary folks that have invested in the likes of um, Stanoff. What sort of recourse do they have under well, normal circumstances? Right, shareholders. Um, by shares, most shareholders are not original subscribers. When the company was launched, IPOs, initial public offering, most of them are second, third, tenth, twelfth uh, shareholders. In other words, they bought their shares from other shareholders, and the money they pay for their shares go into the pocket of the shareholder they bought it from. It doesn't go into the company. It's different from the original subscription. When original shareholders, when the company is formed, and it's launched, let's say, on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. You and I subscribe for shares, a thousand rand a share. Our thousand rand goes into the coffers of the company. If six months later you and I sell our shares for 1,200 rand to John and Mary, John and Mary pays us each 1,200 rand. That money goes into your pocket and my pocket. So you will see that the shareholders and especially with um, electronic trading, and I was the chairman of Strait for many years. So I know the ownership changes of shareholders in 22 to 25 seconds today. And you've got the name of the custodian, such as Standard Bank or Computer Share. You don't even have the name of Nimrod and Mervyn on the share certificate. So um, shareholders um, have uh, an investment but when something goes wrong, the duty of care of the directors is to the company, not to the shareholders. It's to the company. And it's the company who can sue the shareholders. Now, the company can act, only act through its board because the company has no mind of its own. Its mind is the collective mind of the board of directors. If the board, if there's an accusation that the board has acted negligently, and that the company should sue the directors. Well, the board has a meeting as if it was the company deciding. And I'm going to assume that the board comes to the decision, no, we did not act negligently, and we're not going to let the company sue us. 
Well, the law is not an ass, and the law says, well, in that circumstance, the shareholders can sue the directors as if they were the company. It's called a derivative action. They actually derive their power from the company. So you and I as shareholders can start litigation against the errant directors, but we're suing as if we are the company. And if you and I recover money after spending millions of rands in legal fees, the money we recover doesn't go into your pocket or my pocket. It goes into the company's pocket. And the money is first used to pay creditors according to their ranking, preference, secured creditors, ordinary creditors, concurrent creditors, uh, suppliers, uh, receiver of revenue, for example, and at the back of the queue, if there's anything left, is the shareholder. And that was the judgment in the shareholders suing Steinhoff. They sued on the basis they invested and there were uh, irregularities, and that caused a diminution in the value of their shares. They took the plaintiff took exception to this. This was the directors and the auditors took exception to this, saying, well, the duty of care by the directors to the company, not to you, the shareholder. And if we failed in that duty, as you allege, let's accept that because we're taking exception here. You don't have to lead evidence. We're going to assume you prove everything you've alleged in your particulars of claim. And we were negligent. And the company has suffered, suffered a loss. The right the correct plaintiff is the company and not the shareholder. And that's exactly what the court held, that it is the shareholder, it is the company who has to sue the directors. And if the, the company through its board decides not to, if shareholders sue, they can only sue as if they were the company. And if they recover money, the money goes back to the company, it pays first the creditors and the shareholders are at the back of the queue. That is the concomitant right of having limited liability. When you buy that share for 1,200 rand, that's the end. You're not liable to the creditors. You're not liable to employees. You're not liable for anything. You've got no duty or responsibility. As we're parting ways, the last point that I, I want to pick your brain on is the fact that, you know, growth does not necessarily equate to profit or success, as in, in the case of um, Stanoff. Uh, would you agree with that statement? No, absolutely, especially today where we've moved from Success being defined as increased profit, increased share price, increased dividends, which was the Milton Friedman model, that you focus on increasing the wealth of shareholders, and if you get that right, the wealth should trickle down to the impoverished at the bottom. Well, the trickle became trickle and it stuck at the top. And uh, the primacy of the shareholder model, in fact, exploded eventually through the GFC. So... um Today we have the enterprise value creation, preservation or erosion model. What value is actually being added by the company to society and the environment? Its activities in producing its product. What are the negative impacts on the environment, for example? How is the company trying to eradicate or ameliorate those negative impacts? What are the positive impacts? How are they enhancing those? So the critical question being asked today in enterprise value creation, which is the global movement, and you may or may not know the IFRS, the International Financial Reporting Standards, has agreed to expand its mandate. So 
by November they will announce, uh, this year they will announce an International Sustainability Standards Board, through which you will see the concept of enterprise value creation and the economy, how does that impact on the company? Well, if you take an economic event like the collapse of Lehman Brothers, it had a huge impact on companies and they have impact on its financial condition, its balance sheet. Um, the pandemic has had a huge impact on socially on the company, health and safety. So you have an E, S and G, the quality of governance. Are you practicing outcomes-based mindful approach to governance or are you just mind, mindlessly ticking boxes? And uh, so that has a huge impact on the company. So there are two sides to the sustainability coin. How you make your product and the product when it goes out into society has an impact on the economy, society and the environment. But the economy, society and the environment also has an impact on the company, its financial condition, its cash flows, its income statement, its cost of capital and its market capitalization if it's listed. So you've got to look at sustainability both ways. And what's happening globally is that it's being looked at through an enterprise value creation lens. And that's going to be the Sustainability Standards Board, which should be announced at the community of people, the climate change people meeting in Glasgow in November this year. It should be announced, so says the IFRS Foundation, supported by OSCO, the International Securities Commission, which is the regulator of regulators, for example, the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. So Thank you very a bit much. of that, but there's a huge change happening, which was expedited by collaboration. That's SDG 17. And I think it was driven by the collaboration and finding a vaccine. So we've now got framework providers in the ESG space, environmental, social and governance space, which is worth more on a balance sheet today than the tangible assets, which are financial assets according to financial reporting standards. And ESG factors have become extremely important. So ESG funds are growing exponentially faster than the financial funds that you and I have known for many years. So there's a huge sea change happening. And for boards, have got to get their minds around that this year. It's, it's a huge mindset change. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Prof, for that wonderful insight. I sincerely hope that uh, the listeners have been educated uh, immensely in terms of your wisdom and, and input. Unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it here, Prof. Thank you very much for coming through. Thank you. Thank you, Nimrod. Good night to everybody and your listeners. Thank you. Absolutely. There we have, that was Professor Mevin King giving us a blog by Boeing Terminal Corporate's Governance um, is shaping or obviously reflecting on the, the standoff saga. We have definitely learned a lot in terms of how, you know, uh, the, the boards needs to be configured and the extent to which the, the um, I suppose the limitation on the uh, uh, advisory board as, of, as compared to uh, unitary board. We're going to take a break in a second and we'll resume this uh, interesting conversation after the break.